This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network Middle East Studies channel. I'm your host, Dora Rousi, Executive Director of Unity Through Diversity Institute, where we celebrate the diverse heritage and help promote the future of our heritage. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to Dr. Abdul Galil Shaif. I met Dr. Shaif at a conference that I organized on the multicultural port of Aden at the Wolf Institute, uh, the Wolf Center in Cambridge University. Welcome, Dr. Shaif, and thank you so much for joining us today and helping us understand more about the Middle East that is always in the news and so complex. <laughs> so first, just a brief introduction, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself more. Dr. Abdul Dalil Shaif immigrated to Britain from South Yemen at the age of nine. He has a PhD in political science from Sheffield University, and today he is the chief executive of ACT and Hatfield Institute. He formerly served as chairman of the Aden Free Zone Public Authority. Welcome, Abdul, and thank you for joining us here today. Tell me what I'm missing from your bio that everybody needs to know before we jump in. Thank you for inviting me first. Uh, I appreciate it very much. Uh, you haven't really missed anything. I mean, life is full of things that we've done, but we can't mention them all. So I think you've mentioned the main things in, 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 in my life. <laughs> okay, good. So we're going to, I'm sure we'll hear some other things as we talk. Um, so let's start with the title of the book. So the book is called South Yemen, Gateway to the World. And you add a question mark after that. Can you explain what you were trying to say there with the question mark? I think the question mark is the cheeky part of the book, I think, is because... <laughs> It never achieved its purpose. Uh, being gateway to the world means huge economic opportunities uh, that weren't taken advantage of by uh, the people who ruled Yemen immediately after independence from Britain in 1967. Uh, so I think the question mark is to say, look, this is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. It's a strategic location uh, at the tip of uh, South Arabia. And uh, it has huge potential in terms of the shipping and the trading that is going through that uh, Strait of Babel Mandab. Uh, and yet, yet Yemen, uh, South Yemen particularly, remain poor, impoverished uh, and unable to use uh, the opportunities. And I think the book explains why that is the case, why Yemen hasn't progressed in the way that it should have, particularly South Yemen. And we'll talk about South and North later on. But South Yemen had an opportunity from 1967 until 
1990 to actually do something with the country. Uh, and I feel that the, the people that led the country uh, throughout that period, uh, whilst they did a lot of good things, uh, weren't able to use uh, uh, the economic opportunities that were available to them to actually build South Yemen into a prosperous state. And, and you say from 1967, but actually... Aden has a huge history. It's a, we've been an international port for at least hundreds of years. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about the history and what's unique about South Yemen? And you did mention South versus North Yemen. So a little bit about the geography and what makes it unique. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm an anti-colonialist. Uh, and yet the more you talk about the British presence from 1829 until 1967, the more you realise how Britain was able to use uh, Aden uh, as, as a shipping port, as a very important port. It was the second uh, busiest port in the world when the British were there. So they were able to use it economically in a way that, that future generation leaders from the NLF, the National Liberation Front, weren't able to do so, and later on the Yemeni Socialist Party. Uh, so while whilst I'm an anti-colonialist, uh, I don't believe that colonialism is a good thing. Uh, I believe that you can't get away from the fact that, that, that Britain did successfully manage to use it as a strategic port uh, in the same way as Hong Kong was used uh, and did, did that tremendously successfully. Uh, they used the potential of aiding uh, in a way that people after them weren't able to use. Definitely. So so you mentioned that it's a poor port, that it um, didn't build itself up. Can you give us a little bit of an understanding economically, historically and politically, the basis for the North and South Yemen? Yeah, just just before I go into that, I think I think it's oh. important to know that yeah, South Yemen um, uh, lived as a, an entity on its own from 1967, uh, particularly early 68 uh, or 68, all the way to 1990. So there's a huge number of years there where where the South Yemenis governed themselves in in South Yemen. They took over power from the British. Uh, albeit uh, divided uh, between two particular groups at the time, the National Liberation Front and the Front for the Liberation of South Yemen. Uh, one was more aligned to Nazarism and Nasser and national, nationalism uh, and was more aligned towards Gulf states. Uh, and I think that that split, in a sense, uh, continued within the NLF that took over from uh, yeah, Flozy, and it continued within the Socialist Party. The divisions continued as, as they went along, and uh, those those divisions were what, in a sense, uh, talked uh, the life out of the revolution that was supposed to bring in prosperity for South Yemenis. Now, going into your question about uh, South and North Yemen, South and North Yemen lived as two separate states. Uh, one was ruled by, um, uh, b before 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 67, uh, Yemen were, South Yemen was ruled by the British, and before 62, North Yemen was ruled uh, by uh, uh, the Zaydi sect uh, imam. Uh, so I think both had different kind of futures. Uh, one did a revolution against the British and decided to develop uh, the first socialist experiment in the in the Arab world in South Yemen. Uh, and the other uh, uh, kicked the imam out uh, and tried to build a republic that's based on Islam. Uh, 
so that, that they were the they were the difference uh, until 1992 when the two sides decided they were going to uh, unite the country uh, unity uh, which which in a sense has ended up very badly uh, countries poorer uh, economically uh, the people are more divided um, and uh, North Yemenis, uh, particularly the regime in the North Yemen for a while, uh, had hegemony over both North and South Yemen for a long time. So the, the unity experiment from 1990 until today hasn't really worked as a project for the Yemeni people. And now we're back to a situation where the Southerners are wanting their own state. And I think some of it is also, if you can address the even just the geographical difference, I think that also plays into it. You mentioned about the port and the options, but can you talk a little bit about the difference? Um, yeah, there's huge differences. Uh, North Yemen is largely populated. It's about 20 million, uh, whilst the south is about 5 million. Uh, so there's, there's there's huge population differences. Uh, South Yemen, when the socialists were in power, uh, did away with the tribal tribes and tribal conflict because uh, they believed the state was being the biggest tribe and not the smaller tribes like uh, the Yafis, the Dalais, the Hadramis, uh, uh, the Shabwanis, the Ibyanis. Uh, there was very little of that during the, the socialist period because people believed that the state was far bigger than everybody else. Where in the north, the traditional tribal structure remained the same. Uh, and hence, uh, uniting one part which believed in tribalism and bringing the other part which thought it's destroyed tribalism, I think had had a um, uh, major impact on, on the unity uh, unity agreement. I think many people in the South thought they were going backwards. Um, and, and hence a lot of the differences that that rose in the war that we had in 1994 uh, and then the war that we had in 2015 uh, after the Arab Spring. Uh, so I think I think uh, generally there are differences in societies, whether it's tribalism, uh, whether it's political culture, uh, whether it's the way the army was organized in, in the South and in, in the North. Uh, the, the North Northern army was much much tribal from the tribal leaders, where the the southern army was much more uh, from every family, every household, uh, and I think bringing those two together didn't work for the benefit of the Yemeni people. And, and you talk a lot about the different governments and how they went through, and there are so many. I don't think we can get into all of them, but I do want to touch upon one of the topics, not necessarily one of the government structures yet, um, and. One of the topics I always have to talk about is the women and the status of women. And you talk about tribalism and the difference of going backwards. How did that affect um, the status of women in North and South or just South? Hugely. I think it's had a major impact on, on, on women, particularly in the South. Uh, women in the North haven't developed in the same way as women in the South prior to 1990. Uh, the reason why is uh, in the South, uh, from 67 onwards, uh, there was a sense of socialism. It was equality. Women uh, would be involved in the army, in security service, in political party structures, in trade unions, uh, in political life and economic life generally. And I think that this was one of the major, um, one of the major 
benefits uh, of the socialist state in 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 South Yemen. Uh, I'm not saying that in any way that it reached the level of where women had political leadership at the top. It was still mainly controlled by men. But I think women in society generally were playing a much bigger role there. The way they dress. Uh, the way they are allowed to 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 participate in the political activities, uh, things did improve hugely on the on the socialist for 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 women. I mean, some people probably didn't like that in the south, but that didn't make a difference. I think the 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 uh, the, the state was was supporting the the the, the women in that. In that struggle, uh, you know, the, you can't marry more than one wife during the socialist period. Uh, and even Ali Salam al-Bid, who was the leader of the socialist party, when he uh, married more than one wife, he had to go through uh, a tribunal uh, for that. And that was unusual because uh, in Yemen, you know, you, you through Islamic law, you could marry as many as, as four within the, the legal circumstances of Sharia. But uh, in the South, that wasn't allowed. You know, uh, they, they, they were pushing forward a socialist agenda. And I think to some extent that was their, all, their, their, their downfall in their relationship with the rest of the Gulf states because uh, the other Gulf states didn't like South Yemen at all. Uh, in fact, they treated them as an enemy mainly because of their socialist agenda, but also because of their links with the Soviet Union at the time and the socialism that was going on in, in the Soviet Union. In the, in the North, uh, it was very different. In the North, the traditional structure maintained itself, the tribal structure maintained itself, and women were still playing a backseat role. But in a sense, the sad thing, the sad thing about the situation now is that both North and South now are falling back to the same traditional structure that existed before independence. So women have lost out hugely in that in that project. Right. You mentioned that polygamy and a cap and the lack of a cap on dowries have come back and kind of seeped back into the South. Yes. Um, so yes. I, yes. I have to say it's interesting you say that the a little bit off topic, but you say that the Gulf states didn't exactly like uh, South Yemen, except I personally know some people who would come from the Emirates to get out of the more um, conservative structure and come there to have some fun. So that's also... <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, uh, there's no doubt uh, that uh, if you look at the literature, uh, all the literature, there's no doubt that South Yemen was treated as an enemy state because they were seen as a communist state. Uh, it was the only socialist experiment in the Arab world, uh, and it was unique. And where it was with those Gulf states all around it, yeah, made it very difficult for them to be able to achieve that project, to achieve the purpose mm -hmm. of that. Of that project, and if you look at the situation now, it probably explains it all. Yeah, uh, now people, the leaders of South Yemen, and the leaders of North Yemen are all in the Gulf states, trying to buy friendships from the different Gulf states. So this is this is where we are now. This wasn't where we were then, but it right. is where we are now. And one of the things that we talk about then, one of the things I thought was really moving in the book, um, is that in 1971, you mentioned the workers demanded lower wages and chanted, and I'm going to quote, a reduction in our salaries is a revolutionary duty. Very interesting the way that it's seen. Can you talk a little bit about that national positive fervor? Yeah, I mean... Uh... <laughs> 
when I when we speak to it, when we speak about this particular situation now, people think that you know that that South Yemen must have been doffed uh, to 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 demand lower wages. You know, who who would demand lower wages in 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 any circumstances in any world? You know, but but South Yemenis <laughs> to yeah. to wajib. You know, uh, uh, people went into the streets uh, demanding that their salaries be cut so they can save the state. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think that was due partly to the revolutionary fever that was going on at the time, uh, particularly in terms of supporting a socialist experiment. Uh, the strength of this S- uh, YSB in terms of its put hold on the uh, the minds and imagination of its own people, um, and also I think people genuinely wanted to build their own state. Uh, there was a project available, and they really wanted to make it succeed. So I think that's why people want out shouting in the street that they won there, and that was during Salman's period. Uh, Salman Ali Rubia was. Uh, uh, the leader of the Yemeni Socialist Party when it started. He was a leading member of the NLF, the National Liberation Front, who fought against the British, and he had huge public support. Uh, that's why probably his, colleagues, his comrades eventually killed him. But he had huge public support. People identified with him. He was the kind of guy that, that wouldn't wear a nice watch or a nice suit, as many of the politicians nowadays would do. Uh, he lived in a humble circumstances. Uh, he uh, visited all the poor pe- the peasants, the poor people in the, in their place of home and in their projects that they were working on. And people genuinely loved him. Uh, and I think that's also another reason of why people one time in the street, they believed in, in his leadership. But like I said, the, the, the intensive fighting, the fighting within the Socialist Party ended up in 1978 getting rid of him. Uh, and obviously that's uh, another milestone uh, or another breakdown of the relationships within the Yemeni Socialist Party that brought that brought it to an end eventually. Right. So, so can you talk about the end a little bit? Um, 1990, yeah. right? Uh, well, the end of the Yemeni Socialist Party, in my view... No, right, the Socialist uh, Party. Not the complete end of it, but... What what strangled it really uh, was the crisis in 1986, uh, when the Yemeni Socialist Party uh, exploded. When 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 Ali Nasser Mohammed, who was the leader of the Yemeni Socialist Party, he's from the Ibian region, uh, decided uh, at 10, ten o'clock in the morning on the 13th of January. Uh, 1986 to uh, uh, overthrow his uh, comrades in the Politburo of the Yemeni Socialist Party. Uh, he uh, invited them to a meeting and the machine gun went off and uh, most of them were slaughtered uh, in the meeting room. Uh, and m- many of those people were from, particularly from the Dala and Yafa region of South Yemen. Uh, and I think to some extent they were expecting it because his their their colleagues, their friends, their comrades uh, came to the rescue and uh, took the fight on against Ali Nasser and overthrew him where he then went to the north of Yemen uh, as a refugee. And the, 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 the people who supported Ali Antar and Saleh Maslah uh, and Ali Shaya and Abdul Fattah Ismail uh, took over the state, and I think to some extent there was about seven to eight thousand YSP members killed uh, from January to end of February '86. 
uh, and that killed the capacity of the Yemeni Socialist Party to be able to do the very positive things that it was doing uh, and the negative things, but mainly the positive things that it was doing. Uh, and uh, that influenced uh, Ali Salem al-Bid, who became the leader of the Yemeni Socialist Party after the 86 crisis. Uh, to go for unity because uh, he realized that economically he could no longer function uh, politically and administratively the, the state was very weak because it's lost most of its uh, people in the war. Uh, and he decided that the best thing to do was uh, to join up with Ali Abdullah Saleh and unite Yemen. And I think that is one of the reasons why Yemen united. Yemen united in 1990 because the Yemeni Socialist Party, Socialist Party in particular was weaker. Uh, it had lost most of its uh, thinkers, political thinkers, but it's also lost most of the people that that uh, uh, would have not gone for unity. They would have gone for the socialist experiment. Uh, and it left Ali Salim will be with the option of uniting with Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was a much more cleverer man than he was in the way that he handled the unity agreement. I mean, the unity agreement itself in 1990 was apparently a piece of paper, like a cigarette pack, where they said we'll just unite without thinking through how you unite the education system, the cultural system, the political system, the military system that you have in place, the banking system. It was just, let's just have one Yemen united, uh, one big Yemen, one global Yemen that, 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 that would be important. I mean, I'm one of those people in 1990 that cried when Yemen united because I thought what a fantastic thing that was. I actually thought that the unification would bring joy and prosperity. Obviously, it didn't turn out to be that way. Uh, what turned out to be is a complete disaster that we're all living through. Uh, and now, like I said, many South many South Yemenis, not all South Yemenis, but many South Yemenis are wanting to have their own state back, even if it meant having the socialist state back. It's much better than having the project that they've got at the moment. Well, we're, we're going to get to that, but I first want to talk about, as you mentioned, the neighboring states around Yemen thought of them as um, enemies. So it, from your book, the, Jordan is the one who stepped in to kind of facilitate. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that Jordan's role has always been a facilitator to try and bring the parties together. It tried to... Um, to uh, Ali Salim al kept having differences with Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was president of Yemen. He, he, Ali Abdullah Saleh was a president and al was his deputy. That was how the unity agreement was formed. Uh, but Ali Abdullah, Ali Abdullah Saleh, like I said, was a much more clever man in terms of manipulating the situation so he can have more control and more power. And Ali Salim al from the south felt that his power was lessening and lessening day by day. Uh, and then he decided to run away from Sana'a and go to Jordan. He did it three times. Where he, Every time he had a difference with Ali Abdullah Saleh, he decided to go away and then there will be some sort of mediation through Jordan. Uh, and Jordan tried to do Watiqat uh, al-Ahd al-Ittifaq, which is the unity agreement, how to maintain unity, how to restructure it. Uh, obviously, that, that didn't work neither because uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh... Uh, felt that he was a stronger partner. And in 1994, uh, when the Jordan Agreement failed, uh, Ali, Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, uh, launched his offensive in, to take over the South. Uh, and uh, it wasn't difficult because he's already, like I said, manipulated the situation to the extent that he was the winning partner all the way through. Ali Abdullah Saleh had given up his weapons, his army, his money, uh, and the power bases. Uh, and uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh was able to bring people from the South on his side 
people who had a difference with Ali Salim al-Biz uh, in the south in 86. They, they've already run away to Ali Abdullah Saleh. So Ali Abdullah Saleh was able to use them as well to infiltrate the south because they were southerners. So even 86 kept haunting the, the, the crisis of 86, kept haunting uh, Ali Salim al-Biz and the southerners all the way to 1994. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So let's get into a little bit the civil war as it comes up. Um, you quote Yasmin Hassan, a female uh, activist who took part in a demonstration against the war. And she said, I'm going to quote, I like to put in some quotes. The war in Yemen was about political power, selfish leaders fighting for more power. The leadership were not concerned about the struggles of our people, but were worried about their selfish pursuits for more influence. This was not about us, the people, but about them, the leaders. I have to say that's often the case, but um, what's her significance and what's the significance of what she says? Yeah, I know Yasmin very well. She's still alive. I mean, I, I interviewed her way back, decades back. But uh, uh, sadly, I agree with her. Uh, um, I think Yemen uh, had huge opportunities, whether it was the South after independence or whether it was unity after the unification uh, process in 19, huge opportunities. And I think that, that we haven't been blessed with the best leaders in the world. Uh, uh, so I agree with her that the fight for political power by uh, uh, individuals, uh, tribes, um, uh, power-hungry people, warlords, has significantly impacted uh, negatively on the way that we have developed as a country. Uh, what kind of a country that Yasmin wants. I remember she wants uh, a prosperous Yemen. Um, she wants equality for women. Uh, she wants opportunities for people. Uh, and I think she's absolutely right. It's what all Yemenis want. It's what most Yemenis want. Uh, but I think whilst we have people in power fighting for, for the sake of power, and not for the sake of country, because we are very rich people in Yemen who've grown rich out of politics. Uh, and unless we can deal with that, unless we can find people who want to serve the country, who want to give service to the country, we're not going to go very far. Uh, so she's right. Uh, sadly, she's right. Uh, sadly, we're still in the same position. Sadly, the situation is worse now because we're now, uh, yeah, in a sense, uh, strategically located to make opportunities, so to identify opportunities. But if you look at what the Houthis are doing right now, we're strategically located to, to, to make problems for the rest of the world. And that can't be helpful, neither for us in Yemen, nor for the rest of the world. Uh, so, so yeah, Yasmin is absolutely right. So we'll get back to the rest of what you came up with, because there is a lot there. Uh, but at, um, you talk about leadership, and on page 106, you quote an ancient Yemeni poet that says, the unluckiest man in the world is he who rides the lion or rules Yemen. And I don't think the question mark is the only thing cheeky in your book, I have to say. I think this plays into it too, and especially because you put it in the context of the Arab Spring. What made you bring in this quote at this point? 
you know what made me bring it is I met the president Ali Abdul Saleh about 14 times when I was uh, the chair of the Aden free zone um, and one of, my, one of my discussions with him was about his famous comment about politics in Yemen is like dancing on snakes heads yeah. so I tried to get him to explain to me a little bit more what he meant by that yeah and he looked at me and he says no one can explain that he says uh, but I've got so many snakes around me that I've got to keep dancing all the time to make sure I don't get bit yeah and in a sense it, it stayed in my mind uh, so I think uh, he who rides the lion uh, in Yemen is he who tells the stories uh, we never hear the real stories of real people uh, who you know, people who died fighting the British for example because they wanted a free South Yemen yeah uh, we don't hear much from them you know uh, they've gone uh, but we hear a lot from people who've taken over political power that haven't made any real contribution to society as a whole uh, so I think uh, I, I wrote that on the basis of what he what he said and my my interpretation is like um, you've got to be brave to in in Yemen to get to that position but you've also got to be uh, a person of self-importance that can maintain that seat that can maintain that position of power it's at the moment we've got so many leaders anywhere it's much harder to to comprehend but at one time we had the leader for 33 years in Yemen which was Ali Abdullah Saleh uh, and that's a long time to be able to yeah. survive. I mean, you've got to have brilliant survival skills. But <laughs> 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 to be able to maintain the power base. And I think he had great survival skills. So if you're talking about the average person, you talk about the common citizen is destitute um, and that ISIS and Al-Qaeda has also kind of had a foothold there and we see that, but yet that some of the Houthi leaders get up to $1.14 billion, like the Houthi leadership from uh, fuel and oil distribution. Seems to be that's a lot in the region. So I think you spoke about that. So I wanna talk a little bit about that kind of network that is being raised there. And we know today American and Israeli ships are being um, attacked by the Houthis in the Red Sea. I'm assuming with the support devices in Al-Qaeda based on what reading here. Um, do you see this as part of the internal strife or out? outside influences, if you're talking about the common person there? Yeah, I think the the presence of uh, Al-Qaeda Al or Daesh in, in ISIS in, in, in Yemen is not an accident. I think to some extent they've been pushed out of Iraq and uh, Syria and other places because Yemen is a vacuum at the moment. Uh, when you have an absence of state structures and state systems and leadership in the country, uh, you will automatically get people filling gaps. So I think that that, 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 that that corner of the world at the moment has got that problem. And I... Uh, I feel sorry for whoever takes over because they've got to deal with that issue. Uh, it's an issue that's going to put Yemen uh, in a very difficult situation uh, in the future if it's not dealt with. Um, I, I don't think Yemen's getting proper support internationally to be able to deal with this. Uh, I think uh, that the Yemeni crisis itself could have been resolved by now if people were serious. But I think things have taken over now. I think you've got Ukraine on the one hand, you've got Sudan uh, on the other, you've got what's happening in Gaza and the Middle East at the moment. And I think all these 
particular situations have deprioritized Yemen for the international community. Uh, so there's no real diplomatic agency to to get this situation resolved in Yemen. People have been in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates now for, for, for years and they still haven't come up with a solution. We hope and we always hope that a solution would come through. Uh, but on, until a solution comes through, I think that these uh, extreme factions will get will gain more ground. Uh, and whilst they might be quiet at the moment, they don't need to be doing anything because the whole thing is in chaos anyway. Yeah, so the fact that they're probably organizing and preparing for worse things to come is my 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 my, my problem. So that's that's in terms of uh, Daesh and in terms of ISIS, ISIS and uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, in in uh, in Yemen, and they're both in the south and the north. They, particularly in the south, they're situated in the Ibian region, which is not very far. It's only about forty kilometers from Aden, uh, and in the north, they're in the Beda region, which is right in the middle of of uh, of Yemen. So I think these are uh, these are issues that need to be resolved. I think they can only be resolved with an alliance of international help, uh, a proper government in Yemen that represents both sides. I think the southern issue will need to be resolved. You know, do you allow the south to govern itself or do you give it autonomy in the in the, in the federal state? Or do you have a centralized system like we did in 1990, which hasn't worked? So I think these are the kind of options that are available uh, uh, for for people to discuss and come up with a solution. I think that the, the 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 solution to Yemen's problem is more in the hands of its neighbors than it is in the hands of Yemenis. Uh, they have huge influence uh, on the situation, uh, both Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, uh, and to some extent Iran, which supports uh, the Houthis. Um, I think unless you get all these people in a room and you're able to come up with a solution that deals with the issues that I've just talked about, uh, you're not going to to get very far. Uh, like I said, other issues are more pressurizing for the for the world. I think it's the Americans. The Americans have probably got the strongest hand in all this and how they move and how quickly they move. Uh, they're not usually very quick. They're usually very slow. So I think that's part of the problem. I mean, you can see it in Gaza how slow they are. Uh, so imagine in, 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 in Yemen. So I think I think uh, to some extent uh, uh, the, the regional and international players are probably uh, much more important in getting a solution rather than the local players, yeah, who are now having to seek a solution because economically Yemen's fallen to pieces. Uh, I don't know whether you know this, but um, in 2008, when I was there as chair, chair of Free Zone, one of my staff would be earning uh, 80,000 riyals. That would give them monthly $400. Uh, 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 now, the same person is probably still earning 80,000 riyals. It's only worth $80. So, right. uh, so in 2008, you were living on $400. In 2023, you're living in $80. Uh, and that... Uh, I, I mean, it is. They're saying it's the worst human uh, humanitarian disaster in the world because seventy-two uh, percent uh, of the population uh, are, are uh, hungry. Uh, 
they they only have one meal a day. Uh, kids dying from malaria. Uh, the war has cost uh, us eighty five thousand children its own, uh, and three hundred thirty thousand people overall. I mean, this is a nasty situation that 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 requires to a resolution. Yemen doesn't need to be in that position because I, I I know that I work there. But not only just a strategic location, it can make huge, it can make billions out of its location. But it also has oil, it has gas, it has fisheries, it has honey. Yeah, uh, uh, it has so many things. Um, investment will only come when they know there is security. But, you know, they say business, uh, money is a coward, you know. Money only follows where there is a sense of security. Yeah. So you mentioned that you some of the activities that you did in Yemen and for Yemen. Um, tell us a little bit about maybe one or two of the um, organizations that you worked with to free South Yemen from much of this disaster. Well, I I support the 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 Southern Transitional Council, which is led by Idrus Zubedi, uh, who's currently in uh, the Gulf states, uh, trying to find a solution for South Yemen. I'm not sure how far he's getting, uh, or whether there is uh, support for South Yemeni state as such. I understand from my own work and uh, chairing the 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 the. Um, uh, uh, a non-government organization here in the UK that that, that is seeking uh, South Yemen, that is seeking a statehood for South Yemen. I know that 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 uh, before the Gaza conflict, uh, people were less interested in two-state solutions in Yemen, but more interested in a federal state. Uh, I think since the Houthis have started hitting them in the middle of the sea, <laughs> they, are, yeah. they, are now, they are now saying maybe we should have a two-state solution. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. And I've had uh, I've had uh, a call from a U.S. senator and a call from a, a very high senior MP here in the U.K. saying, "What were you saying two years ago to us?" <laughs> I thought I didn't say nothing. You're picking the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. So that's, you know, the last chapter of your book is the future of Yemen. So you're telling me if I asked you about the last chapter two months ago, it might be different from what you're saying today. Yes, yes I feel so. I, I, I think that the international community has now realized uh, belatedly. Uh, they're, they're always realizing things belatedly, have now realized that the Houthis constitute a threat to the international community. Uh, the Houthis uh, are not a progressive type of organization they, 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 you know they, they still chant every single morning death to America death to Israel uh, or death to the Jews which is even worse than than death to Israel yeah uh, and they are not serious people that you can work with internationally to to get a state in Yemen but yet they've been left alone for so long they are now the most powerful group in Yemen. Uh, and I think they're dictating what happens in 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 the in the future shape of the country, uh, and that to me is dangerous because um, I certainly would be a person that would never work under the Houthis, um, and I know many South Yemenis would dread that, uh, particularly when South Yemenis in 2015 actually stopped the invasion of the South by the Houthis. They fought them and took them right. out of Aden. Yeah, I'm not so sure whether the Southerners have the same passion or power to be able to chuck them out again if they came again, uh, because the Houthis are much more stronger. They've got rockets, they've got planes, they've got helicopters. You know, you've seen the way they've taken the ship, they see the ship in the middle of the sea. Uh, and I think that's the fault of the West. I think the West didn't realize 
the strength of the Houthis. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. The Houthis are are, are using uh, the, the the hijacking of ships and the uh, hitting of rockets to Israel. They're using that for their own political purposes. It's a very good commercial idea to sell to and the nationalist Arab world that feels the way they feel about Gaza. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Houthis are very clever. In that context, I mean, they've, they've gained huge support in the Arab world by what they're doing. I mean, I think what they're doing is bombing. I think it's crazy. I think it's 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 the very thing that will destroy Yemen even further along the line. Uh, uh, but that's not the way that the normal Yemeni would think. The normal Yemeni is probably saying, well, if they're, if they're hitting rockets with Israel, it's much more than any other country in the Arab world is doing at the moment to save the Palestinians. So so, so that's, you've always got to look at things the way the people of the country are looking at it, not necessarily the way Abdul Shaib, Abdul Ghani Shaib is looking at it. Uh, so I, I I actually believe that 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 uh, the, the West now will realise that the 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 Houthis are are dangerous. I mean, the Saudis realised that very early on because they realised that after ten years of a war, they can't win them. Yeah, so they've realised that and they've started negotiating with them about three years ago. The West have only realised two weeks ago how dangerous the Houthis are, and it's unfortunate. But that's the way that the you know that it worked. When catastrophes happen, people start listening. Um, and I do think that the Houthis are a catastrophe for our future. Oh, and it's more than our future because if the Houthis have been in control for so long, then the education system is also based on the Houthi philosophy. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, the last 10 years have been disastrous for our education system because they've they've recruited uh, and they've trained and they've mentally changed the minds of so many young people. I mean, I'm talking about tens of thousands. Yeah, that can only be a problem in the long term. You know, we had a socialist experiment in the South where we were telling people that equalities of opportunities was what they should aim for. Now we've got the Houthi that are saying death to the Jews. Yeah, I mean, if you've got a problem with Netanyahu, you've got a problem with Netanyahu. It's not with the Jewish community. Yeah, but try and explain that to the Houthis and the people that follow them. That's going to be very difficult. Right. So now tell us what you're working on now. Because at the New Books Network, we always like to find out what the next step is. So what are you working on now? Well, I've not decided to write another book uh, because I'm basically confused about the whole situation and what's happening. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, just so confusing. It's so complicated as well. Uh, I'm interested to see how foreign policy towards Yemen is going to change in the next uh, six months. I think it will change. Uh, I think it could be rather dramatic. Um, uh, I would like to see whether whether the West uh, have realised that maybe a two-state solution is the answer uh, in Yemen. Just like we are looking for a two-state solution uh, with Israel and Palestine, we should be looking at a two-state solution where the Houthis have the north or parts of both they've taken and the southerners keep the south. Uh, maybe it was somewhere in the middle, like Ma'arib and Taiz, uh, being shared with the Houthis uh, and uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, led by Tariq uh, Affash. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I think I'll, we'll wait and see on that. Uh, I do think that the uh, Southern Transitional Council is looking for partnership. Uh, they're looking for international partnership. Uh, they, 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 they seem to have a view that a Southern state uh, is not just viable, but could be a rich state uh, that could join up with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates 
uh, in trade in trade and in politics. Uh, I don't think that we'll get the radical socialist uh, back to uh, South Yemen ever again. I think that experiment is gone and dead. Uh, I think it may be the right thing to do uh, in the next 10 years. Uh, maybe we should be thinking of stabilization rather than radical ideas. Uh, security is, 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 is critical, I think. Thank you. Well, this has been really informative, and as was your book, and published by Author House in 2022. Name of the book again is South Yemen, Gateway to the World? Question um, mark. We discussed the need to restore some of the cosmopolitan and uh, intercultural rich history of the South Yemen that was there in the past and should be there again. Um, and I do hope that our talks will continue. This is just the beginning and we'll continue our discussions among different groups. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time and your effort as well, uh, Dorora. You've been wonderful. <laughs>